my Bible, God's written living word to me. Open my eyes, Lord, that I might behold wonderful things from your law. We're in a new series that I've entitled, Belong, Believe, Become. And this is part three in that series, and I've entitled it, or this morning's message, Encounter or Lifestyle. You know, the Lord's been speaking to us prophetically, and he gave me a word. I want to share it with you. He said, I am giving things a new name. I'm giving things a new thrust. I'm giving things now that have been heretofore in the future. Last week, the Lord showed me a door in the upper corner of our sanctuary that people were just streaming in. I submit to you that this house, God is taking this house, not just this geographical location. This is simply where Genesis meets. But the house is called Genesis. That's the community of believers. God's taking this community and he's growing it. He's expanding it. Not just for numbers sake, but because he's interested in transformed lives. And as it were, you're going to see people streaming in from a place you know not of with lives that we're not quite ready for, but thank God they're going to belong, they're going to believe, and they're going to become. Hallelujah. So the Lord had us change our ethos. And we've changed it to belong, believe, and become. The word ethos means the character of an organization, their core value, what really makes them tick. And so what we're really about is creating a place of belonging, believing, and becoming. See, we really believe that our goal as Christians is to share God's grace, not decide who gets it. So this new paradigm of doing church looks like this. We allow people to come as they are, literally. We allow people to be honest and vulnerable. And in this paradigm, it says that anyone can belong, regardless of their orientation, regardless of their beliefs, regardless of whether they're even Christians or not. They're included, they're loved, they're embraced, and they're welcomed into the community of Genesis. And then... After belonging, their ears and their eyes are truly open to hear about Jesus and his church, which is called to demonstrate through signs and wonders and miracles, but most of all love that Jesus is who he claims to be. And then after that person gets to that place of believing in Christ and they begin to embrace the Holy Spirit, there can be true transformation. This is the kind of church that we're after. We've discovered that belonging and believing and becoming can be messy. Last week we talked about the issue with preaching the grace message and how that oftentimes those who preach grace are accused of lowering the standard how many of you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever felt like maybe if we preached too much grace, then we would lower the standard too low? Okay? I mean, after all, when are, when are we going to call people to account for sin? When are we going to hold people responsible if we're always preaching grace? When are we going to hold people responsible 
for their lifestyle. And so last week we entertained that aspect of this. I submit to you that the message of grace does not lower the standard. In fact, Jesus raised it even higher. Did you know that Jesus lived under the law, but he preached for the benefit of born-again men and women? But then he ministered to the whole house of Israel. Let me say that again. Jesus lived under the law. He preached for the benefit of born-again men and women, but he ministered to the lost house of the sheep of Israel. Quite simply, he was preaching ahead of redemption. He was preaching into that time when man would be born again and that the Holy Spirit would come and live inside of man and actually give him the ability to live like God wants us to live, which could never be accomplished under the law. And so the mistake that we make as we read the Gospels is that we often think that how Jesus treated people in the Gospels can just be applied continuously, unanimously, to the epistles. Let me give you an example. Jesus said to the crowd when dealing with the woman who was caught, into, caught in adultery, let the first one who is among you that's without sin cast the first stone. Let he who is among you that doesn't have any sin cast the first stone. But see, in the epistles, Paul said, when I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. But I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or are greedy or cheat people or worship idols. You would have to leave this world to avoid people like that. I meant that you are not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer yet indulges in sexual sin or is greedy or worships idols or is abusive or a drunkard or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. So see, this whole thing of belonging and believing gets messy when it comes to this grace message. And it's because we've taught the message of grace only from the Gospels, not understanding that there's a message of grace that we have to translate from the epistles and that we have to look carefully at what the New Testament teaches us. Jesus was the one that initiated God's rule here on earth. Jesus came to reveal the kingdom of God. I want to show you two principles this morning from this kingdom that Jesus initiated that will absolutely revolutionize and change everything about your walk with God. Join me in a familiar text, John's Gospel, chapter 13. John chapter 13. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. John's Gospel, chapter 13, and verse 1. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. There's a footnote in the New Living Translation that says, regarding that last sentence, that it could also be translated this way, and now Jesus was going to demonstrate his love here at the end. That's important as we keep reading. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the, uh, Judas son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus. 
Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and that he would return to God. So he got up from the table and he took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and he poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that he had wrapped around him. How many disciples were there? Were they all present here at this meal, this supper? There's no trick questions. The answer is yes. All 12 of Jesus' disciples, including Judas, were present when Jesus began to wash their feet. Verse 6, when Jesus came to Simon Peter, he said to him, Lord, are you, or G Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested. You will never wash my feet, Jesus replied. Unless, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Simon Peter exclaimed, then wash my hands and my head as well. Lord, not just my feet. Jesus replied, a person who is bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean, but not all of you. For Jesus knew who would betray him, that it was meant. That is what he meant when he said, not all of you are clean. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again, and he sat down and he asked, do you understand what I am doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you, I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger greater than the master. Let's go to verse 18. I am not saying these things to all of you. I know the ones that I've chosen. But this fulfills the scripture that says, The one who eats my food has turned against me. I tell you this beforehand, so that when it happens, you will believe that I am the Messiah. I tell you the truth. Anyone who welcomes my messenger is welcoming me. And anyone who welcomes me is welcoming the Father. Now Jesus was deeply troubled. And he exclaimed, I tell you the truth. One of you will betray me. The disciples looked at each other, wondering, Who could he mean? And the disciple that Jesus loved, sitting next to Jesus at the table, motioned to Simon Peter and said, Who's he talking about? So the disciple leaned over to Jesus and asked, Lord, who is it? Jesus responded, It is the one to whom I give the bread that I dip into the bowl. And when he had dipped it, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. And when Jesus had eaten the bread, Satan entered Judas. Then Jesus told him, Hurry and do what you are doing. Verse 31. As soon as Jesus, uh, Judas left the room, Jesus said, The time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory, and God will be glorified because of him. And since God receives glory because of the Son, he will soon give glory to the Son. Dear children, I will be with you only a little longer. And as I, as I told the Jewish leaders, you will search for me, but you can't come where I'm going. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you you should love each other your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples and Simon Peter asked Lord where are you going and Jesus replied you can't come with me or you can't go with me now but you will follow me later but why can't I come now Lord he asked I'm ready to die for you and Jesus answered die for me really I tell you the truth Peter before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. There's two messages here this morning. And the first 
is the character of the kingdom. Jesus revealed the character of what his rule in our lives would look like. I wondered and I asked the Lord, why did you disrobe? Why did you wrap a servant's towel around your waist? Which is how one translation translates that. Jesus disrobed and then wrapped a servant's towel around his waist. I did some study on the robes that Jesus wore. They were multi-layered. There was more than one. And if you'll remember, the woman who had the issue of blood that went to find Jesus and reach out and touch just the hem of his garment, does that remind you? of anything that you've read in the Old Covenant about the robes and the tassels that hung from the hems of the garment? We're told that most of these robes that they wore were sort of a one-piece type of thing and that they were ornate and costly. So beautiful was Jesus' robe that the guards during his crucifixion cast lots to see which one would get it. They couldn't cut it up. They would destroy its value because it was all one piece. And so they were casting lots to see which one would take it home. It was of such value. Jesus wore expensive robes because he was a teacher and a priest of the Most High God. Now get this. The scripture says he took those robes off and wrapped himself in a new covering, a servant's loincloth. Why did he do that? Jesus disrobed because he was illustrating the removal of one covenant for another. He was laying down one system to usher in a new one. And by doing what he did, he reveals to us the character of the kingdom. Now realize he washed both the feet of his betrayer and of the man who before six o'clock in the morning was going to deny that he ever had anything to do with him not once not twice but three times. But Jesus washed both of their feet that night. You see here's the dynamic of the kingdom. Peter and Judas both heard the same good news. They saw the same signs. They saw Jesus work the same miracles. They were both present when demons were cast out. In fact, they were of the twelve who were sent out with 72 to cast out demons and heal the sick. They did it all. However, Peter, though immature and not yet born again, believed that what he was hearing was true. And then it moved him into the place of safety and transformation. In other words, belong, believe, become. Peter not only belonged to the company of disciples, he not only believed what Jesus was teaching, but he embraced it, he held it fast, even though he denied the Lord. He held it fast and he became transformational in his lifestyle. So, though when perfect Peter was changed, on the other hand, Judas never saw anything but the old law code. He belonged. He believed in the encounters encounters that he was seeing, but he was still steeped in the old moral law code of the old covenant. 
He couldn't embrace the fact that Jesus, when he disrobed, was revealing a whole new covenant, a whole new way of living and loving God. And that's this, that favor comes before obedience. Judas knew that he couldn't keep the old covenant law. And with the money that was offered to betray Jesus, he gave up. He gave up on belonging. He gave up on believing. And he went for what was easy. He didn't embrace lifestyle. He stayed just in encounter. And there's a huge difference. Peter was transformed. Judas gave up. Peter's faith became a lifestyle or transformational. Judas's faith was merely an encounter. It moved him emotionally, but it never changed his paradigm of life. It never changed his context for living. Now, neither man was perfect. Jesus washed both Peter and Judas's feet, but only one of them actually believed into Christ. Only one of them actually believed into discipleship and transformation. I wonder if that speaks to any of us. Do we find that we've belonged to Christian community? That we've even believed in encounters that we've had with the Lord? So did Judas. So did Judas, but it never became a lifestyle. It never became transformational. Did you know that you can attend church all your life, even have encounters with signs and wonders and miracles, and yet never be transformed into one who really becomes what God wants you to be? Happens all the time. Churches are filled with people who have had genuine encounters with miracles, genuine encounters with signs and wonders, but whose life has never been truly transformed. They don't have that intimate relationship and fellowship with God. They know Him theologically. They mentally assent that He is good and that the New Testament is real and that Jesus is a good man and someone to follow. But that relationship has never really been formed in a way that's transformational. How about you this morning? Do you have a transformational relationship with Jesus Christ? Or like Judas, are you one who simply belongs because it's what you do? You, you have a moral conviction, you go to church... And you've even encountered the power of the Holy Spirit, seen signs and wonders, and perhaps performed them yourself, as Judas indeed did. But that new birth experience has never changed everything you are, everything you think, and everything you dream. For that to happen, you've got to not only belong and not just believe, you have to believe into becoming. Let me tell you why I keep using that word. There are three different words for the word believe in the New Testament. In the book of John, the noun for believe, the word believe in the Greek, is never used. Only the verb of the word believe. 
And so when you read in the book or the Gospel of John that someone believed in God, what we're talking about is a relationship, an experience, an encounter that doesn't just leave you in emotion, doesn't just leave you in the place of mental ascent, but it moves you from one place to another. If you ask the average person on the street, do you believe in God? They'll tell you yes. But that trusting God, you ask people, have you prayed about this? Oh yes, I'm, I'm trusting God. How many of you have heard that? You can, you can talk to unbelievers and they'll say, oh, I believe in God. I pray every day. I'm trusting God. But that trust has never moved them into a transformational experience where Jesus has become everything to them. And they wouldn't think of making a life decision without Jesus being at the center of it all. They wouldn't think of it. When Jesus talks to his disciples about believing on him, it is not the Old Testament concept of trusting God. Did you know that in the New Testament, the command to trust God is never mentioned? Not once in King James, New American Standard, or the English Standard Version are we commanded to trust God. Oh, the concept of trust is in the New Testament because that's one of the definitions of faith, to trust God. But you have to understand that under the Old Covenant, trusting God was out there. He was out there. Believing in Him was out there. You negotiated with Him through good works that He would reward you somehow. And that's where Judas lived. But Peter got a hold of something different. When Jesus disrobed and put on that servant's towel and began to wash their feet, he not only demonstrated the character of the kingdom, which is love, he demonstrated the context of the kingdom, the commitment of the kingdom. And Jesus expressed it this way, unless you take up your cross and follow me daily, you cannot be my disciple. So much for political correctness. I don't want you following me. I'm not after big numbers. Jesus would have crowds of 5,000 on one day and it would all be reduced to his 12 disciples on the next. He turned to him one day after 5,000, preaching to a crowd of five to 10,000. They all left and Jesus turned to his disciples and said, you all want to go too? And here's the best that Peter could muster. Lord, where would we go? I ask you this morning, when you look at the context of your Christianity, are you serving God? Are you coming to church? Are you involved in whatever you're involved in in terms of Christian service? Because what else would I do? I mean, where would I go? I mean, I'd lose a lot of my friends. And I mean, it's what I'm supposed to do. I, I know I have to obey God. That's a whole different context. That's Judas. The context that Peter 
embraced and then become transformed by was that under grace, favor comes before obedience. Under grace, we admit, I cannot keep one iota of the law. I'm bad. I am not. I am to blame. I'm guilty. I'm a lawbreaker. I deserve to die and go to hell. But thank God Jesus paid the price. Jesus hung on that cross for me. Jesus lived under the law perfectly and became my spotless lamb for me. And now, by believing into him, not just trusting God as a sort of far off, don't know what else I'd do, trying to negotiate through my good behavior, but I believe into what Christ did for me. He comes into my life, transforms me into a new creature, and now I actually have the potential to live like he lived. This is why Jesus said during his teaching in the Beatitudes, You have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. I say unto you, don't even look at a woman with lust. Or else you've already committed adultery. You've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. I say unto you, don't even call a person a fool or get angry with them. Or else you are in danger of hellfire. What's he saying? He knew that if we really believed into this grace, if we really believed into Jesus, that this new birth that God would do in our lives would give us the ability to live like God lives. And every accountability for sin, He would take care of. There is no more condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I will never face judgment for my wrongdoing. All my sin, Jesus took upon himself and washed away in his precious blood. And now, he didn't lower the standard through grace. He raised it and said, not only will you not touch a woman, you'll be able to deal with the very desires to touch a woman. Why? Because you believe into me and I am in you and I'm going to transform you into a new creature. I ask you this morning, do you have that? Are you born again? Or do you have religion? Have you been transformed by what you believe? By the way, I want to think of how I can say this. Because I'm sure I'll make some people mad. Signs and wonders and miracles do not create faith. They create a curiosity that then can respond to God's word. But the Bible says faith comes by and hearing by the... Excuse me? Faith comes by... 
not miracles and signs. And hearing by the not miracles and signs. Miracles, signs, and wonders are a result of faith that comes by hearing the word. This is why you often see such a shallowness in the life of people who have built their Christianity on signs and wonders, but they've not given priority to the word. And so often, Jesus said, be careful. Many shall stand before my Father in that day and say, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not heal the sick? And he will turn to them and say, depart from me, you who are lawless, I never knew you, workers of iniquity. Church people. Churchgoers. But they've never been transformed. Never been totally changed, radically and passionately made over and anew. And yet they're doing miracles. Did you know that the same Jesus that is deliverer for some can be a stumbling block for others? Did you know that the precious Word of God that can be so life-changing for some can become an offense for others? Why is that? Peter and Judas, listen to this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6-8, through 8, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. Excuse me, let me reread. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word. You've probably seen this little ship that I have up here this morning. Yes. This is my version of a ship. Are we not told that our salvation, that our experience with God is a hiding place? That it's like a ship that we can run into? Uh, is there an Old Testament story you're familiar with where God delivered the people through a boat? <laughs> Which is a type of our salvation? I have up here... A boat. A boat of transformational lifestyle. I mean, this constitutes a community of believers who not only belong, who've not only had an encounter, but they have believed into Christ and they've become Jesus. Excuse me, I did not say they've become divine, but they act, walk, talk, live, think, and breathe just like Jesus. Do you know what Christian means, the word Christian? When they first started calling them Christians in the book of Acts? Christ-like. The, the reason they started calling them Christians is because there were a bunch of people back then who had not only belonged to this new church, had not only believed in encounters, 
But they believed into Christ and this new birth was radically changing them so much that they acted and talked and breathed like little Jesus is running around. I mean, they did miracles and signs and wonders, yes, but they loved people. I mean, they really loved people. (laughs) And what did Jesus say in our text? By this shall they know that you're truly my disciples if you love people. So they really believed this thing. They, they got into the boat. There's nothing worse than being in a boat alone. It's not really very fun. You know what? Just before you do... I'm, I'm, I'm curious this morning because I'm very aware that so often money is a good indicator. <laughs> Jesus said what? Where your treasure is, where your money is, there your... Isn't it interesting how Jesus himself, teaching new covenant principles, looking ahead to the future of born-again men and women, said that an indicator of you really being all in and passionate is what you do with your money. I can't tell you how often we have individuals approach us for help with their money. Money. Money, don't get too excited. It's a dollar bill, okay? <laughs> money. But money's just an indicator of what? It's just, it's my life. M- money's an exchange for my time, my talent, my treasure. Right? Uh, money isn't me, it's just an indicator of something about me. And Jesus said... Where your money is, there your heart will be. God said this, but prove me now with this. Bring your tithe into the storehouse. Test me now with this. If you'll honor me with the first fruits, I'll be sure that your bank account, he called it your bats because of the wheat. They were wheat growers back then, and so they farmed, and they would fill the silos full. He said, your bats, your silos, will be overflowing with grain if you will put me first and honor me with the tithe. So in the New Covenant, Jesus doesn't teach us to give money away. He tells us to teach people to live on the Word of God. Live by the Word. And then you'll transform people. Hmm, How quaint that it would go to the bookkeeper. The bookkeeper catches it, okay? You see... The Word says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the... You know, this is why there's boundaries on how much we will help somebody financially. Because I know that when I help somebody financially, I'm just putting a band-aid on it. If they're not living by the Word, if they've not been transformed by the Word, 
if they're not embracing this as lifestyle and they're just looking for an encounter and somebody to dig them out, they'll be back in the same place over and over again. What's the old adage? Give a man a fish, you fed him for a meal. Teach a man to fish, you fed him for his lifetime. What are we talking about? We're talking about believing into who he is. He is our ark. He is our transformation. He is my financier. He not only blesses me financially, he is my financier. He not only heals my body, he is my healer. That's the difference between being transformed by the word and simply giving it lip service through encounters. Oh, that was close. So, you know what some people that have money problems need to do? You don't need a handout. You don't need somebody to write you a check for 500 You need to start obeying what the Word of God says. Let me give you an illustration real quick. There's a man sitting over here with a gray, graying hair, salt and pepper, and a, a yellow shirt on. His name's Ken. Great guy. Get to know him. Greet him after service. He's got some tremendous stories to tell you. A couple of months ago, he emailed me. And he said, Pastor... I'm sinking fast. <laughs> Man, I am sinking fast. He said, my rent's not paid and it's due. He said, I don't have any food in our cupboards. My refrigerator's empty. He said, I owe the IRS back taxes and the current ones are now due. He says, things are a mess. My business hasn't made me any money. I haven't had people calling me. I'm going down fast. Now, the obvious thing to do, of course, as a church would be what? I mean, he regularly attends, right? He's a good guy, right? He loves the Lord. Write him a check, pastor. I didn't do that. I sent him an email back. First, number one, Ken, am I right? Tell me now if I miss anything. I said, number one. You need to begin speaking the Word of God over those finances and over your career. Here are some scripture verses, some promises that you need to be releasing out your mouth covenantally over your circumstances. Number one. Number two, I said, do you tithe? Amen. Pastor, you're not supposed to ask new people that. I mean, he's pleading for help and now you're going to drive it in and just twist it a little bit. No, no. We're going to live by the Word, folks, not your emotions. We're going to stay on the Word, not live by circumstances. This man was sinking. If I wrote him a check for 500 it would have been a penance of what he needed. It wouldn't even have paid, begun to pay his rent, much less all of his IRS bills, much less bought all of his groceries. And put gas in his tank. And he has an 11-year-old, 12-year-old, 9-year-old. Not all of those. He has one kid. It, 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 he's... <laughs> so he writes back. He says, no. 
I said, I challenge you. I know you don't have much. But whatever comes in this week, write a tithe check off of it. He was here Sunday early. He was ready in his seat. And he was so proud. He was anxious. He was testing this thing out. He had to believe the word of his pastor and more so the word of God. But he said, you know what, I'm going to write that check. And I don't remember what it was for, brother. But, you know, it wasn't hundreds of dollars because he didn't have hundreds of dollars. He wasn't making any money. But he took what he had and he wrote a tithe check out of it. He'll tell you, and his testimony's up on the church website, by the way. Everything turned around. In the space of three to four weeks, all of his bills were paid. People were now calling and giving him business. All the IRS debt was paid, his rent was paid, and he had food in his cupboard. Because he began to honor God with the first fruits. I'm telling you folks, whatever your situation, I don't want to make this about money, I'm just telling you. The answer to our solution is the Word of God. Not people hand-holding us and babying us and telling us that it's going to be okay. It's frustrating to the ears of the Lord when out of the mouth of His saints comes this phrase, well, just trust the Lord. That's an Old Testament concept. You're talking about something out there. You're hoping and praying maybe something will change. No, don't trust the Lord. Believe into Him. Take His Word and believe into Him. Put that on, my brother. I've thrown you more than a sandwich. I've thrown you more than a $500 check. You're in trouble. But I've just thrown you the Word of God and the greatest safety, the greatest deliverer, the greatest lover that you could ever have. His name is Jesus. And I want you to wear Him. I want you to begin to speak His Word. I want you to begin to come to the sanctuary of the Lord our God and worship Him with hands uplifted. Yes, right in the middle of what's going on in your life. And you know what? As you do that and as you're consistent to honor the Lord with everything in your life, something will happen on the inside of you. You'll begin and you'll get in that boat. And brother, I won't be alone anymore. We'll start doing it together. It's a community. That's the difference between believing into. Jesus never left people at the point of encounter. He said, I want to transform your life. But that's up to you. I've provided the transformation. I'll give you a new birth. But you have to believe into. Make a commitment to my word. Make a commitment to live by my word. And believe into the ark of the new covenant. That favor comes even before obedience. I now through the new birth equip you. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. To live like I've always wanted human beings on planet earth to live. Amen. Let's stand.